Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welsh History Podcast, episode 189, Wales and Slavery. So before we begin this uh, episode, I just wanted to clarify a couple things and, and kind of give you an overview of what we're going to be talking about today. It's both a general overview of African slave trade in the uh, early 18th century and, of course, beginning for England in the late 17th century, but by the same token, we're talking about it as a general overview. So there's going to be stuff that's going to zoom out quite a lot and some that will focus in on specific people and specific events. But at the same time, keep in mind that this is not a 100% completely thoroughly covered podcast on this issue. And you could do many, many episodes just on this issue alone. And of course, keeping in mind that because this podcast is going out to the general audience, I will be probably selective in what I choose to talk about, but there is a lot involved here and it can get quite mature in spots. So if that's a worry, I'll let you know if that's coming up, but I want to be respectful of those that suffered and keep in mind that there was well worse than anything I bring up in this podcast that happened to these people and that it is something that we shouldn't forget or set aside. So, starting with that, let's get into the episode. Slavery has been a part of the human condition, at least going back to the earliest known written material we have, and going, of course, up to the recent past. These histories showed that slavery was an important condition of empire building, all of the ancient empires used slaves, be it from warfare or from conquest. Labels of what was a slave and what was an indentured servant can be a bit loose, since in the Middle Ages, those terms were almost interchangeable, at least if we were looking at it from a modern perspective. Yet, Roman industrialized slave movement and trade was in such a way to make it an intrinsic part of society, and it was how they succeeded so massively. And even within that, it was still challenged and fought against. Wales, at the end of Roman rule, continued to enslave and be enslaved as they had done for thousands of years. When the Norman conquest of England occurred, it resulted in the gradual blurring of the lines between the pre conquest institution of slavery into serfdom. Slaves were no longer recognized separately in English law or custom, and by the middle of the 12th century, the institution of slavery as it existed prior to the Norman conquest had fully disappeared, but other forms of unfree servitude continued, 
for some centuries afterwards. So it's a bit murky to describe any firm end of slavery in Britain, but what you can say is that slowly inherited slavery died out. Social mobility made eternal servitude a thing of the past, even in the relatively class-restricted places such as Britain. I would suggest that two big drivers of that were first the Black Death, which changed the labor dynamic for about a generation, as well as the colonization and migration of the population into the Americas. This meant that people could, at least for a price, escape what would be their start in life. But as the building of what would become the British Empire began in full force at the end of the 17th century, there was also a rise in new sources of free labor. Slaves from Africa were now seen as socially acceptable. The export of slaves through Luanda on the Angolan coast first was documented in 1582 and only ended in 1850. During those 268 years, over 1.3 million men, women, and children were sent to the New World. The effect of the slave trade on the world stage was enormous. It would drive forward development in ways that would be shocking, horrifying, and completely normal to a Roman or an enlightened explorer of the 18th century. Because the way that Europe became dependent upon the circular slave-centered Atlantic trade, sometimes called the Triangle Trade, that its economy and the profits became so immense in part because it was so varied. Regions that had nothing directly to do with the capture or use of slaves profited from their imprisonment and labor. Southwest Ireland, as an example, became a major exporter of beef, butter, and other salted provisions during this period. Why? Well, because cork meat packing was needed for the escalating demands of barreled beef to feed slaves in the Caribbean. As historian Chris Evans described it, Wales, in quotes, direct involvement in the slave system, the sense of fitting out slave voyages, was, of course, very limited. The country was flanked by two of the largest slave ports in Europe, however, Bristol and Liverpool. But it is doubtful that a single slaving expedition left a Welsh harbor, end quote. Only 14 Welsh ships in the 18th century were equipped and tasked for the transportation of slaves from Africa to the Americas. The target of slavers from Wales was largely the Caribbean and the highly lucrative sugar trade. In some cases, these boats were packed as tight as sardines with a concept of getting the numbers overseas quickly and efficiently over keeping them healthy and fed. Make no mistake, the trading of slaves was purely financially driven and success was defined in numbers, not in health. Bristol, that southern English city that bordered southeast Wales, became a giant and popular city, the third most important city in Britain, on the back of the slave trade. The wealth that poured in from the merchants who called the docks home would drive a building boom and create massive advantages for the home government, and of course, not a few jobs for Welsh people moving from the southeast of Wales into the southwest of England. 
As the 17th century was moving along, the slave trade moved with it. Spanish America was a key location for slaves in this period. When the shipments of captured Africans began, it was because many were being shipped here. They had been used extensively in both Peru and Mexico since the 16th century. There is some evidence, in fact, that the original movement of slaves out of Africa began even earlier than that, possibly up to a century before. Some 135,000 captive Africans were landed at the Caribbean port of Cartagena between 1595 and 1640. Most would continue on to Peru. Another 70,000 were enslaved in Mexico and on the quayside at Veracruz. The final destination for shipments, including 44,000 who disembarked in Buenos Aires. So the money made on these trips were not insignificant. Vessels sailed in this circular trip, taking arms and textiles and sometimes iron and brass to Africa, slaves then on to America, and sugar and rum and tobacco on a return journey to Europe. For the merchant ship, you made money at every port you visited and pulled something else from each to sell on. The government was not unaware of the financial wealth that was pouring into the cities and towns because of this trade and would do what governments have always done, sought their own piece of the action through taxes, tariffs, and the hiring of legal pirates, or what we call privateers, to harass other governments, taking away some of their shipping profits. Many of these merchants sought and received royal charters for corporations, and in many cases, the royals themselves did get a piece of that action. Nobility in Wales followed suit and invested sometimes major sums of money into these companies. The Welsh nobility, for example, joined James II when he was still the Duke of York in his investment of the newly reconstituted Royal African Company. The company would be knee-deep in the trade over a decade as they built slave forts and factories on the coast of Guinea. With those troops, they would then enforce military law in the area and protect the trade. Through this triangle, they would then trade, as mentioned, textiles, gold, brass, and other items, including things like muskets, to the African kingdoms that were involved in this slave trade, and then in exchange, would then take them onto the Caribbean and then there trade for rum and sugar, which would then be traded back to Europe. This was the effective idea. Along with that, hardwoods and other items would be sought to generate wealth in Europe. Key to this wealth and power was the link to the royals. It would be those links which brought an end to their monopoly in West Africa and eventually leave the company bankrupt. When the Glorious Revolution happened, it meant that their key benefactor, James II, was no longer involved, so they lost their royal charter and their protection. The whole enterprise was now left to survive as more and more competition arrived because the company had slowly lost its standing and its monopoly. One of the major players in the post-revolution world what of the English slave trade was a Welsh-born man named Geoffrey Jeffreys. He was born in Llywell in Brennickshire. While living in London, he maintained Welsh land and links that would allow him to continue to seek 
political advantage there. He would serve as the Sheriff of London and would be knighted in 1699 after his election as Sheriff in the same city. Jeffreys served as an MP for his Welsh land holdings in Brecon from 1690 until 1698 when he lost the next election, but then again from 1701 until his death in 1709. So how exactly did Jeffreys become so influential and powerful? He was very politically well-connected in London, and that allowed him to create a merchant empire. Because it was always easier to achieve success if you had links to the right people, he certainly had cultivated that particular advantage. He traded to the Chesapeake and the Caribbean islands, carrying Virginian tobacco and sugar from the Leeward Islands to the European markets. Key to his wealth, of course, was the slave trade, and he was hired as an assistant, better known as a director, of the Royal African Company. As the 18th century began, many Welshmen sought their fortunes and thus became more involved with the trade. Maritime life was not unfamiliar to coastal Welsh people, but more and more were seeking ways out of their poverty and boredom through leaving Wales. Many would move to England, like Jeffreys, seeking to put themselves in better position while either apprenticing themselves or cultivating connections along the line throughout places like London. Others migrated to the Americas, seeking land to cultivate and that they themselves owned and would be no more dependent on the will of a landlord. Some sought to make a name for themselves as adventurers and explorers crossing the continent in the hopes of finding new and better sources of wealth. I'm Ken Harbaugh, host of Burn the Boats from Evergreen Podcasts. I interview political leaders and influencers, folks like award-winning journalist Soledad O'Brien and conservative columnist Bill Kristol about the choices they confront when failure is not an option. I won't agree with everyone I talk to, but I respect anyone who believes in something enough to risk everything for it. Because history belongs to those willing to burn the boats. Episodes are out every other week wherever you get your podcasts. Greetings from Evergreen Podcasts. We're rolling out a listener survey and we want to hear from you. The information in the survey will help us gather statistics and in turn make our shows more appealing to advertisers. I know most people don't like ads, but this is one of the only ways our shows make money and help keep their lights on. We promise it will only take a few minutes, but the impact on our podcasts will be tremendous. As a token of our appreciation, we'll randomly select one lucky participant each month to win an exclusive merchandise package from Evergreen Podcasts. Head to evergreenpodcast.com slash listener survey to help a show and possibly get some free stuff for doing so. We can't thank you enough for the support. Now back to the show. On the other hand, others were forced into the Navy, serving in growing numbers on British ships looking to protect this burgeoning wealth from pirates, privateers, as well as the Spanish, Dutch, Portuguese, and French. For some of these men, they found their calling at sea. A few would move into their own pirate ships or privateer commissions. Others would join the growing merchant shipping and would discover wealth, or at least the world at large, through this travel, and more than a few, of course, would die in the process. One example of someone who gained and lost from this particular adventure was Captain Thomas Phillips. 
He was hired by Jeffries to captain the 450-ton and 36-gun ship known as the Hannibal. Phillips was to take a part share in the vessel, but most of the capital needed to maintain the vessel was to be advanced by Jeffries and his other partners. These included Jeffries' younger brother, John, MP for Radnisher, and another. Phillips's share was to act as part of the purchase of the vessel, but most of that capital would be advanced by Jeffrey and his cronies. These included all of the above-named people who were, in some cases, working as assistants for the Royal African Company, and people like Sir Samuel Stainer, the sub-governor of the same company. Hannibal set sail under the command of Phillips in 1693, joining a fleet of other ships bound for Africa. The voyage from England to Africa was a mess. Terrible weather drove the convoy apart almost immediately. This meant that they were traveling mostly alone, which is always dangerous when other ships prowl the waters looking for targets like themselves. As historian Chris Evans explains, quote, The Hannibal's mizzenmast snapped in the gale and a seaman was lost overboard as the crew struggled to bring the pitching vessel under control. On the 23rd of November, 1693, the Hannibal was attacked by Lewis, a French privateer of 52 guns near the Canary Islands, end quote. The two ships exchanged broadsides from four in the afternoon until ten at night. The French ship was eventually driven off, likely due to darkness and damage. As Phillips described it, the Hannibal was, quote, most miserably shattered and torn in her mast and rigging, end quote. Five men were killed and 32 more were injured during the battle. The Hannibal finally made its way to a safe port, repairing the damage and offloading those too injured to continue, as well as refreshing supplies. Eventually, they made their way to Africa with a combination of rum, Welsh wool, and iron, which they had brought. The wool and supplies and slaves that they would eventually pick up. The Hannibal would arrive to pick up their 700 slaves after a terrifying journey through sickness foul weather and oppressive heat, and the arrival of a bug, little known amongst a lot of European sailors, at least in full idea, known as the mosquito. Purchasing African captives was a process in which they had to go through various kings and chiefs and cultural identities to, in order to obtain what they were desiring. This would mean that they would then have to inspect the slaves that they finally were given, check them for current health problems, for long-term health conditions that might be affecting them, and as well, generally, how strong, physically fit, various other things that, of course, they would be looking at, keeping in mind that they are treating them effectively like cattle rather than as people. And they would much like cattle, brand them at the end of that process, usually with a marker that denoted which ship they were going to be associated with. For the sake of the podcast, and as I said earlier, I would like to preface this by saying I am only treading lightly on the worst of this trade. It is a horrific thing, and certainly, as you can imagine, the lives of African slaves once caught were filled with fear, illness, and inhumanity. 
There is no way to dress this up as anything other than what it was, a cruel and terrible industrialized process that saw people in terms of financial value and had little respect, certainly nothing more than the respect that they had for a barrel of rum or sugar. Going back to our example, as the Hannibal got caught in a calm running across the mid-Atlantic, dysentery ran up and down the captured slaves. In order to save water, the rations were then cut while in this calm area in the hopes that they would survive the crossing and, importantly, that there would still be water for everyone during the journey. However, one result, of course, of dysentery was dehydration, which meant that the cut in water actually made the situation incredibly worse. Of these 700 slaves which had begun the voyage into the unknown, for them, only 372 arrived in Barbados. While the example is an extreme one, it is not without precedent amongst the slavers, and most ships lost at least 15% of their slaves to death for various reasons. Jeffreys and his cronies in London and Wales created wealth in large measure on the trade of these slaves and the suffering that they endured. Of course, none of that was Jeffreys' problem as he saw it. Privation or disaster of their ships, crew, and cargo were the risks that you took. In that respect, they, like many others in Britain, created large empires while allowing others to take the true risks. One of the major contributions from Wales during the slave trade, of course, as we mentioned, was that while parts of the trade was from Europe to Africa, that meant that textiles were part of that trade and were sent to friendly African slavers along the Gold Coast. Welsh wool played a key role in obtaining the first part of their journey. And these ships coming from Europe it was key to how they developed the trade in the first place. They would not have reached the slaves had they not first traded the textiles to some of the African groups along the coast. It was part of the trade-off, in effect, but it wasn't the only thing that came out of Wales. Tin, copper, and brass, specifically brass, were features of the Welsh trade going back to the Iron Age, but now it began to be important in this so-called triangle trade. Brass was a major desire for some of the African kings and chiefs on the Gold Coast, and it acted as a part of the lubricant towards the purchase of slaves because this acted as another method and another way to gain the approval of these men in order to move on to the next level or, in some cases, to pay for the slaves that they acquired. The iron, of course, and the blunderbusses that they brought with them also were key to the financial exchange that was going on. This all becomes incredibly important to the development of the Americas, but also in the funding of the British Empire in the early stages and allowed it to fight wars to claim even bigger targets, such as India, that would become a major part of the British Empire and the chief financer of the wealth that generated on mass during this period and allowed for the industrialization of Britain and the eventual move away from slavery. 
with all of that said and done, we will certainly be talking more about this as we go through the 18th century. Slavery is a major part of that century because of this. British and specifically Welshmen were a huge part of it. And we know this because you can see the traces of them throughout this entire process. So this isn't something we're going to duck away from and we're going to deal with even more as we go along. Also, you can expect us to talk a bit more about privateers and piracy because, of course, we're starting to get into that era where they become incredibly influential on the way things are going. So with all that said and done, if you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can always reach me at the Welsh History Podcast at gmail.com or on Twitter at Welsh History Pod or on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash Welsh History Podcast. If you would like to support the podcast and help us out, you can certainly do so at patreon.com forward slash Welsh History. That does help with the research such as this one, which certainly could not be done without your help. And I appreciate all those who help in that regard. Your donations have been very critical in the expansion of my studies this year in preparation for some very meaty subject matters which are going to come up in the future and have come up so far. So thank you very much. We'll talk to you all later. Have yourselves a great day. Take care. Bye-bye. Welsh History Podcast is a member of the Evergreen Podcast Network. To find more information on them, you can do so at evergreenpodcast.com. Thanks for listening. I'm Ken Harbaugh, host of the new Medal of Honor podcast from Evergreen Podcasts, brought to you in partnership with the National Medal of Honor Museum. In each three-minute episode, we'll learn about a different service member who distinguished him or herself through an act of valor. We'll include stories from the Civil War to Iraq and Afghanistan, and from all branches of the military. We'll talk about service members who were overlooked for the medal at first due to their race or religion, and about those who were celebrated at the time. We'll hear stories of soldiers like Audie Murphy, future Hollywood star who mounted a burning tank to hold off German infantry in World War II, and people like Dr. Mary Edwards Walker, a Civil War Army doctor and the only woman to receive the Medal of Honor so far. Learn about these heroes and more wherever you get your podcasts.